for a couple of episodes back in the series, something dramatic happened. Surprisingly, and um, <laughs> must you give us such a big spoiler like that? Something dramatic <laughs> happened. God, there's no point watching it. Fucking hell! If you've if you've read the book, you know that that's a surprise. <laughs> he seems to be trying to resurrect him without a head because the last chapter we heard the head was being cleaned, so the skull's being sent to dawn. <laughs> Unless he's attached a different head, like a tiny head, onto it. My lady, I know that you wanted him to be less dangerous, and therefore I replaced the brain with the head of a ferret. Hello, and welcome to Shark Liver Oil. It's our coverage of A Feast for Crows by George R. R. Martin. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. And Dave, this is part seven. Part seven. Seven. Only, we are re- it, feels, we are, it feels like only yesterday that we were doing part 95. So this, this week we're going from um, the chapter about Brienne, which starts with them approaching um, this the quiet isle near the salt pans. And if you're reading along with us, we're going as far as a chapter about Sam, which uh, begins the cinnamon wind. So once you get to there, stop reading. The cinnamon, so, am I alone in thinking the cinnamon wind sounds like a really weird kind of French fart gag? Like... <laughs> Even the farts smell like bakeries. <laughs> I think that's how all a, the French people talk, right? Yeah, I think it sounds a bit like a song, a French song, maybe in the Eurovision Song Contest entry. <laughs> Feel <laughs> no, because that, that sounds like a kind of like spoof hair metal thing, like it's some <laughs> kind of mashup of Finland and France, like sort of <laughs> feel the cinnamon wind in your hair. <laughs> Yeah. Big three chord riff, you know, <laughs> fake like fake rubber face on and that sort of thing. Um anyway, Brienne. Let's get let's get back on message. Brienne is um they're close to the salt pans, so they've been heading over to the salt pans, this this scene of destruction, um, because they're on the tail of, of the hound, because mm-hmm. they believe that he's got one of the uh one of the Stark children with him. And um if you remember they the there's basically Brienne and Pod, this guy called Sahil Hunt, who seems to just be tagging along, and uh, this Septon called Septon Moribald, and he leads them across this quicksand uh, mm. to get to what's called the Quiet Isle, um, and this is a, it's a bit of a sort of sanctuary, isn't it? And it's a place where yeah. it seems to, you know, it seems to have been largely protected from the war because of how it's cut off by this quicksand. And it's yeah. just all these very pious, sort of quiet monks just knocking around. Uh, what did you make of this area? Well, I quite liked it because this is finally George noticing that occasionally in a book, even if your main project is to make people really feel the brutality of the world, you have to give them a bit of a breather. Hmm. And there's definitely, like, it's interesting actually how many books do this really, really well. Like, um, The Hobbit does it, doesn't it, with um, with the, the place where they go, uh, where they're staying with the man who, spoilers, might be a bear. And, <laughs> um, um, and uh, that happens, and it, you actually breathe a little bit. And it's the same in, uh, what else am I thinking of? Oh, yeah, weirdly, The Wind in the Willows has this as well. Like, this is really. <laughs> By the way, we should do The Wind in the Willows. That is a fucking brilliant book. Um, but there's this bit, there's this really intense sequence. That when I was a kid anyway, it felt really intense. And then there's this bit where they just sort of chill out a bit. And I was like, oh, whew, take a breath. You know, kind of move through it. And it's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was so sort of on the defensive because of how many times things have gone horribly wrong in this book that throughout <laughs> this, really, I was thinking... Oh, what's you know? When's it gonna? When's it gonna turn? I was thinking any minute. You know, I think there's a bit where they say, "Oh, Brienne, you can stop in this cottage in the middle of sort of on the other side of the uh, the hill, but Pod's not allowed to stay with her because we don't let men and unmarried men and women share a roof in this place." And yeah. I was I was just so suspicious. I was just ready for <laughs> someone to get betrayed at any moment. <laughs> <laughs> that would be quite a thing, wouldn't it? Is if if these like kind of like studiously kind of pious monks <laughs> turned out to be in league with Sir Hyle Hunt who who opened a book on who was going to have sex with Brienne first way back when. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's, to be honest, it's quite interesting that the book managed to make it feel like that because it's very much 
what Brienne feels, isn't it? She's definitely got trust issues now after yeah. what's happened to her in the past. Um, yeah. as, as we saw with that, um, who was the guy? Oh, uh, Nimble Dick, who she never trusted, although he was sort of a straight-up guy in the end. Well, mm. kind of a straight-up guy, well, but apart from that. Straight-up-ish. Straight-up <laughs> yeah. for the purposes of Westeros, which is to say he wasn't he wasn't like a murderer as well as a thief. <laughs> yeah. Um, we get a bit of story time um, from the uh, the elder brother, who's sort of the leader of this group. He tells him a bit about what happened at the salt pans again, which is this massive raid on this town, and it turns out all the villagers sort of try to get in the castle for protection, and the the, the lord Sir Quincy um, barred the gates and just let them all get slaughtered. So he's sort of just holed up in his castle on his own now, surveying once, sort of once devastation. Again. A nobleman of Westeros shows himself to be fully seized of noblesse oblige. Yeah. Or, or, <laughs> yeah. or fuck the poor, as as it might have been called in Westeros. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's also talk about the Hound, specifically. And, you know, there's this rumour that he led the raid. And this elder brother says, no, that isn't right. Um, basically, the Hound has died from his wounds that um, I... Uh, Went out, Jembo and I left him, sort of dying in the in the woods, whatever it was. And this Septon said he buried the hound and left his 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 sort of his dog helm on the on the burial mound. And it's somebody else has basically stolen it. Stolen and is wearing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, that seems to me like a slightly silly thing to have done. You know mm. what I mean? Like bury it. Do you know what I mean? Leave it there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey possible other treasure available in this grave. It's not exactly a sort of recipe for respecting the dead, is it? No. <laughs> this is true. Um, and the his, his horse, um, which I think was called Stranger, um, oh, it's now yeah. been, been renamed Driftwood, and, and it's actually at the... There's a, a moment where you see him, don't you? And it's um, and the horse is at the Quiet Isle now. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. Yeah. What did you yeah. make of this, the Hound Dead? Um... Well, this is one of the areas where I was kind of screwed by the TV series in that I saw it happen in the TV series. So mm. it's a bit sort of... I kind of didn't feel the tension throughout this whole sequence with um, with Brienne wandering around because I knew he was dead. Yeah. Um, and I knew where Arya was, right? Because we've seen Arya cross cross the sea and go to Braavos and, and con- continue her journey as the creepiest little girl in a universe full of creepy little girls. Yeah. Um... So I don't know. It kind of passed me by a bit. But what about you? Yeah. Now there's a there's an interesting um, theory around this, which I oh, think she's not a mermaid, is she? No. Is the <laughs> no. So there's a there's a theory about this uh, about the hound, um, and it's a bit of a stretch. I'd like to get your thoughts on it. Mm. And the idea is that this that the hound isn't actually dead, and this guy is he's not actually fully lying but he's speaking in sort of heavily metaphors and stuff and I'll tell you why so they right. go past this when they arrive there's this big bloke who they see a couple of times digging a grave the theory is that he's the hound and he's been taken into service of the quiet isle and when this um, when this brother the elder brother is saying the hound died he what he what he's really saying is sort of uh... The sort of warring part life. of him, yeah, has died. And the the big thing that makes me think this might, you know, I, I thought when I first heard this, that's a bit of a stretch. You know, I think it's just mm. people. I mean, there's there's theories about that old. Do you remember Sirio Florel, the dancing yeah. master? There are theories about but him he's surviving. Still alive. And I, I, I want that, but that was very much in the sort of Colson lives thing, wasn't it? With yeah, the Marvel yeah. Universe, yeah, like he's still alive because I want him to still be alive. Yeah, but this one, I think there might be something more to it, just because. Um, the, the the elder brother says that you know the yeah, the hound um, the hound died and and I, I put him is at rest now, and then mm. within a few pages when he's talking about himself, um, mm. he says because he used to be a, a soldier as well this elder brother and he says I died on the trident, um, and I mean he he pretty much kind of did he got <laughs> he he sort of got knocked unconscious and woke up. Um, you know, a day later, down the river with no clothes on, because someone had sort of looted his corpse and left him, left him for dead. Yeah. yeah. So 
there's just you know that's just something like a glimmer of hope for people who like the hound he might not actually be dead but um, it I, seems very likely anyway I, I put myself still very much down that he probably is at this point I'm not sure that I can cope with yet another ambiguously horrible yet somehow also likable character in this because <laughs> I, 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 you know I've, I've, all my energy's going in and trying to forget that Jamie is a horrible human being you know, as, as well as the sort of genial mentor to uh, to horny young like pages and that that he's recently become, helping them get girlfriends and stuff. So, mm. like, I'm not certain I can cope with the idea of of the hound also being somewhere in the world. Mm. Uh, but but at the same time, that would be a very interesting thing. And you're right; I think that is a that, that's certainly a more solid theory than either Sirio Florel. Uh, being still alive, or indeed Varys being a fucking mermaid, like that. This is on the this is on the sane side of the whole the whole thing. The Varys is a mermaid one is my favourite theory of all time. But, um, Completely glorious. Anyway, we'll have to, I'll have to find out actually because if you if you come into this, and you haven't listened to the early ones. We did discuss this, frankly, batshit crazy theory that Varys is a mermaid. <laughs> I can't remember what which one which episode it was, so I'll try and go back in the archive and find it and. Maybe tweet it or mention it at a later date, but anyway, um, that was a classic. But yeah, so I think the thing to take away from that, what I'm taking away from it anyway, is it's almost certain that the hound's dead, but mm. there is a sort of a just, just, just something to suggest maybe um, if you if you squint really hard, if you read into it a lot, you could make a case for for him not actually being dead yet. Yeah, um, I mean, okay, I think that's wishful thinking, but just, just the very yeah. idea of, of Varys, somehow George hasn't mentioned Varys was flopping around with his tail out. On the... <laughs> Varys struggled to walk up the many stairs to the Tower of the Hand because he had the back end of a fucking trout. Like, that just <laughs> never happens. <laughs> so, there, so there's this talk about the Hound, um, and then it, it ends with a, yet another person advising Brienne to go home. Um Basically, the elder brother says, "Look, the hound's um, the hound's gone. Arya wasn't with him. She's gone. Oh, he does say actually, it's, it's Arya, not Sansa, who was with him. But oh, yeah. But as yeah. far as I can tell, she's no longer with him. And you know, it's a fool's errand. You may as well give up. And Brienne basically says, "Look, I can't. This is my this is my mission, and this is her whole yeah. sort of reason for living at the moment, isn't it? To try and find one of these children." Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I find it's really interesting that, like, everybody she meets, no matter what system of, like, religion or, like, ethics of honour and chivalry and so on they, they, they would claim to follow in their lives, all of that is trumped by the misogyny of being like, no, women can't do anything. Fuck it. <laughs> They're not allowed. You know? Yeah. I I wonder if this, this elder brother is as much about um, just how, you know... Saying that she's she's wasting her she's wasting her efforts because it's just such a it's such an impossible mission. This, you know, yeah. I wonder if he'd say the same to a. It's in, it's a good question. I'm not sure he would actually, but I wonder whether he would say the same thing to if she was a man, saying, you know, look, you, this yeah. this mission you're on is a is a waste of time. Go back to what you were doing before. Yeah, yeah, and I wonder about that. Like, to what extent is this is this wisdom? And to what mm. extent is this just sort of embedded sexism? Mm. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of that around. You're right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But okay, on to the next chapter, and it's Cersei. Uh, Cersei's holding uh, what's intended to be a midnight council, um, basically because the news of the, if you remember, the Reaver and the Ironborn attacking uh, the Tyrells. Well, yep. this is filtered through to King's Landing, so. Um, and where Cersei intends to do <laughs> fuck all yeah. that's right absolutely fuck all yes yeah surprising no one where, where others would see uh, an attack on the realm and danger from without Cersei sees an opportunity to deal with the perceived danger from within <laughs> so it is isn't it it's 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 politics that eats itself really fascinating stuff yeah. So basically, um, Marjorie and Soloris, and the t- all the Tyrells, basically, uh, apart from Mace, who isn't there at the moment, are, s- mm. are saying, you know, we need the we need our ships back. Basically, the Red Wayne fleet, which is sworn to House Tyrell, 
we need mm. them back to fix what's going on down at the shields because we've yeah. lost them and now the Ironborn can be raiding up and down the Manda, which is their river, you know, without any, you know, until they stopped. Yeah. And Cersei basically says, no, we're not going to... The, the ships at the moment are, are blockading Storm's End. Yeah. Oh, sorry, blockading Dragonstone, I think. Yeah. And yeah. She, she says, you know, um, we can't... We, I don't want to lift that siege. So until Dragonstone falls, you're not having your ships back. Um and it is, it is basically as much about it's less about tactics here because Dragonstone isn't essential to take as soon as possible. It's more about putting pressure on the Tyrells. She thinks it's no bad thing that that the Tyrells are getting their asses handed to them over <laughs> over in Highgarden. And and while I understand that, is I, I don't know if this is like a this just seems really kind of weird thing for her to do to be mm. so obsessed with, like you say, the people like. Basically, the only other major family in the country that are on her side, and this is the reason why she's why the Lannisters have won so much, is mm. because they had the Tyrells behind them. But now she's like, I reckon probably the best the best Tyrell uh, fighter definitely going to get rid of him because uh, mm. you know making your allies weaker is somehow good. Yeah, like, it's, it's just such a stupid move. Yeah, it's like what we said before when she was discussing politics with the Small Council that she seems to only be able to deal with threats that they that she th- can see in front of her or believes she can see in front of her so she's entirely taken up with consolidating her position at court so the enemy mm. of the trails and if it isn't happening in king's landing then it's just isn't important to Cersei. So the yeah. fact that the Tyrells are getting hammered over in over in the reach is 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 fine is almost an irrelevance in terms of how it affects her position in the wider world. It's just her position in relation to the Tyrells that she cares about. And yeah, like you say, part of that is basically trying to... She she sends... Soloris basically says, look, I'll go and lead the attack on Dragonstone to get it in your hands quicker so we can get the fleet back. And she says, yeah, that's fine, do it. Basically thinking, he's probably going to get killed there because Dragonstone's very well defended, very hard to take. And if he's going to lead the charge, that's probably going to be the end of him. Yeah. Right. So a question. You know how in the TV series um, they did the opening scene of Series 5 was this flashback to Cersei as a child being told, you know, you'll be a queen for some time, but then there'll be another one who comes and supersedes you. And mm. and she's really in her head about that. And we've now had that referred to in one of Cersei's chapters in this book as well. Yeah. Um, is that a strong enough reason for you to make her hate Marjorie enough to make her screw the entire country? Like, is Cersei that crazy and is that believable? Or is this just like, is that fairly weak? Because I'm not convinced. Yeah, this is interesting. We actually um, in a, I think a couple, a few, tra- maybe the next part of that we that we read through. There's more about this prophecy and her memory of it, so it mm. might be best saving it till then. But yeah, th- there's definitely we'll say this much now. There's definitely a lot of this thing from her childhood when when she she heard this prophecy from some woods witch that has had a big impact on the way she's been living her life recently. And the decisions she's making is massively informed by this, um, by trying to stop this prophecy from coming true. But yeah. you're right. Whether or not it's um, it's worth taking serious, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of get into a bit once we hear more about what happened there. Um, mm. But it is, yeah, it is definitely a, a big impact here, and you can see it in the decisions that she's making. Mm-hmm. Um, Kyburn is ordering some giant armor. In other news, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I I wonder is he going to turn out to be doing something seriously dodgy involving? Let me pick a name off the top of my head here. Is he resurrecting the mountain? Are we in like the worst, most awful Frankenstein scenario you ever heard? Imagine if Frankenstein's monster was also a complete wanker in life, hmm. like, like reanimating somebody who was a horrible human being. And yeah. making them undead and immortal. Not a good move. Not a good well, move. Well, the, the thing is, um, if that is what's happening and, you know, that is what we're being led to believe here, then he seems to be trying to resurrect him without a head because the last chapter we heard, the head was being cleaned and so the skull's being sent to dawn. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> unless he's attached a different head, like a tiny head onto me. <laughs> my lady i know that you wanted him to be less dangerous and therefore i replaced the brain with the head of a ferret <laughs> a little beard did you ever see the um the live action motion picture of super mario brothers <laughs> those lizard things yeah with the, the tiny, tiny heads <laughs> Oh, we'll put one of those up on a picture, of one of those on Twitter for you, if um, if you uh, if you don't know what we're talking about. But it's a uh, from there was a Super Mario Brothers film. I think it was like eighties or nineties. And um, yeah, yeah well, Bob these... Hoskins is Super Mario, by the way. Yeah. Like, there's casting for the ages. Yeah, but the Goombas were these like lizard monsters with tiny heads, and that's what I just imagine the hound to be if they attach the head on his body. Uh, not the hound, sorry, the uh, the mountain. I was going to say those. Yeah, or either that or new theory. What he's actually doing is he's making a kind of like creepy abandoned theme park thing, and he wants he wants like the big big boss monster at the end of it to be this kind of headless axe man. <laughs> that's my that's my theory. Is he's making a Scooby Doo movie? Is what he's doing. It's an option, isn't it? Um, <laughs> we'll keep that one on the table. Um, yeah. So Cersei returns to her bed. Turns out Lady Merryweather. Um, is sharing Cersei's bed now as well, which isn't massively unusual because I think that does happen quite a lot in this world that they just mm. happen to sleep in the same bed, yeah, um, yeah. sort of with the servants and serving ladies and stuff. Um, it turns out that Sunel, um, this remember this girl who was given to Kyburn, who used to mm. be one of Cersei's serving girls, um, yeah. was acting as a spy for Marjorie, and that's why she was given away or given over to Kyburn. There's there's um, a game of politics you want to stay out of as much as possible. Anything to do with either Cersei or Marjorie, yeah, probably better off out. <laughs> yeah. Now this this Lady Merryweather stuff it does at the end of the chapter, um, they end up having this sort of lesbian sex scene. Yeah. And it's weird because it's kind of wrapped up in. It, it says a bit about Cersei's character this because she almost draws these parallels with how it used to be with Robert in that he'd sort of turn up drunk and basically use her during yeah. the night. Um, yeah. And one morning when she said, you know, you've hurt me last night, he sort of looked away and said, oh, it wasn't me, it was the wine. The uh, the last excuse yeah. of an absolute yeah. bastard. Absolutely, um, yeah. And this is sort of, again, she almost is trying to play the part of Robert, isn't she, with yeah. Lady Merryweather when she when this happens later on and she can't she still she just can't get anything out of it. But I just think it was I think I thought this was quite interesting just to show the again, just another damaged side of Cersei. She's in many ways she's quite pity like pitiable, isn't she? She's pretty a bit of a wretched character overall. Although the thing she does makes it very hard to, to find that kind of pity yeah. for her. Yeah, and again, this is George's thing, isn't it? Like, he wants to find the part of every single character, no matter how hateful, the reason why they are the way they are. Hmm. Um, and, and you know, it explains this, you know, this whole vibe with Cersei incredibly well. Hmm. I have to say, I, think, I find it weird that we haven't had her ruminating on this very much in the past. Because hmm. um, she's been a POV character before. And yeah. it's... You know, why haven't you been... Why haven't we heard this monologue of you trying to avoid being like Robert in your head before now? Yeah. Um, and it's just another way in which I really feel like the, the, the series is kind of... I feel like George sort of coming to this book was like, oh, right, I'm going to add a whole load of new stuff mm. instead of having had it built in from the beginning. Uh, fair enough, I suppose. Things are going to develop and whatever, but um, but it's still... It is a bit odd. I kind of like that he's trying to make her sympathetic because I think that's a sign of a really, really good author, but at the same time, it's a bit... Oh, okay. All right. I suppose yeah. this is what's going through her head. You know, it feels strange. Yeah. I mean, you've got to still work very hard to find any sympathy for her because of the so many things that she does. I think, oh, God, she's yeah. so hateful and spiteful and such a nasty piece of work. Although, I mean, it's an excellent point, isn't it, actually, that, like, um, the, um, you know, the having been abused themselves is one of the most strong statistical... Um, predictors of you know like like many people who are who become abusers have themselves been abused in the past mm, and yeah. and so and so there is that thing of like like 
when when do you stop seeing them as somebody who's worthy of sympathy because mm. because you know people do hateful things and that is hateful but they do hateful things for hateful reasons because hateful things were done to them by people who are probably long dead mm. and and you know and the, and 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 there's this kind of there needs to be i think a way of engaging with our common humanity there and i love that he's making this point even mm. though i totally hate cersei as a character yeah Speaking of hateful things, um, so there was this assassination plot which Cersei had hatched with her uh, partners in crime, uh, Sir Balman and Felice. Um, it was to do remember if it was to kill Bronn. Um, it was the it was the <laughs> it was the it wouldn't be better if Bronn could have some kind of accident. Accident. <laughs> and the guy's like, you mean a fatal accident? Of course. I'm Fatal accident. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually uh, I went and found that uh, Mitchell and Webb sketch you were talking about. With that. Yeah. We're using needlessly ambiguous terms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so basically, Sir Balman, um, after having taken so long to grasp the nature of Cersei's suggestion, has outdone himself by um, instead of causing some kind of accident, he just basically went back and and called Bronn out and said, right, let's have a duel to the death, thinking yeah. that because he was a, a lancer and would charge him on his horse that yeah. he'd be able to kill Bronn quite easily. Of course, yeah. people have been <laughs> underestimating Bronn for years. <laughs> this is another <laughs> example of that. So Bronn ends up killing Sir Balman in single combat, but not before um, he tortures a confession out of him. And this is the moment where Cersei's like, uh-oh... <laughs> <laughs> oh no my finely tooled plan of complete malevolence and control over what everybody thinks about me has somehow failed <laughs> to be fair to, uh, the one thing I'll say in Cersei's defence here even she couldn't have predicted just how ridiculous Sir Balman was going to be in trying to get the guy killed she basically <laughs> said arrange some kind of accident for him and he's gone back and said you sir single combat right now <laughs> 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 I love that, and I bet he was to the to, to he would to the moment of his death been like, no, it's an accident. It's nothing at all to do with Queen Cersei. Oh shit! <laughs> yeah. Um. So so this is this is a bit of a problem for Cersei. Cersei's revenge is um she gives Felice to Kyburn as well. Her basically go to response at the moment seems to be give them to Kyburn, which um is a just about the worst thing you could possibly do. It's basically sending them down to the torture chamber, isn't it? Which is, again, it's just... Ooh, it makes you shudder, doesn't it? It does. And this weird thing where, like, Kyburn is just... I, I, I'm amazed that Cersei can't see how dangerous Kyburn is. Because he clearly, like, he clearly sits outside the normal rules of doing things. And the thing is mm. that Cersei's really good at winning the game according to the normal rules of doing things. But in dealing with Kyburn and actually with arming the, the Faith Militant, she's done two things that fundamentally change the nature of the game, I think. And mm. I think this is where she's going to get taken to pieces. You know, this is what's going to come back and bite her on the arse. Yeah, yeah, that could well be that could well be it. Because things are... It, you feel sort of the sands are shifting underneath Cersei a little bit as this moves along. Um, but she's still in a very very strong position in King's Landing and even though she might be storing up problems in the future by letting the Ironborn run riot on the Tyrells she is there's no denying that you know the Tyrells are in a weaker position now than they were sort of at the time of Joffrey's wedding um, with Mace Tyrell off somewhere else um, their lands being hit hard by the Ironborn Solaris on what may or may not be a, a death mission She's definitely if if the the goal should be, um, you know, strengthen your position over the Tyrells. She's doing a decent job of that. It's just it's questionable whether that should really be the number yeah. one goal at the moment. Well, it's tactical rather than strategic, isn't it? She's definitely mm. she's decided because she's because like there's a there's a magnet line next to her political compass in the form mm. of this prophecy that she's struggling to deal with. Like she's decided that this is the ultimate aim of her life. And actually, that's not like she yeah. or everything she's done up to the up to this book, really, which again kind of pisses me off because you know she's supposed to have had this prophecy since she was a kid. 
Hmm. But like everything she's done up to this book has been very much Lannisters for the win because Lannisters for the win. And now hmm. it's like Lannisters for the win because fuck all Tyrells. <laughs> and that's different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, let's move on to uh, the next chapter about Jamie. Uh, Jamie's arrived outside River Run. Oh, he's sort of near River Run. He's on his way there to try and sort out this siege which is going on. Basically, the Lannisters and the Freys have um, a, a besieging River Run, which is the last sort of the last place that's holding out for the Starks. Um, I think later on we see the. Um, oh yeah, we, when he actually gets to River Run, you can see the uh, the Stark banner still flying over the battlements, which is kind of a. I thought it was yeah. quite a cool moment, actually. I, I loved that, actually. I was like, oh, oh, I remember caring about that storyline and believing <laughs> yeah. that somehow it would be resolved. Look at it, the Starks are still in the game. Fucking <laughs> yeah. hell. Yeah, they're still in the game insofar as they've got one pawn left, haven't they? I mean, River Run's yeah. a decent place, but it turns out all the other River Lords have surrendered, pretty much. Mm. Apart from, I think there's a... There's another one thing, maybe the Blackwoods knocking about somewhere are still holding out, but now, pretty much now, everyone else I, has surrendered. Can I tell you that I enjoyed the Blackwoods holding out because in my head I saw Richard Blackwood. And I just <laughs> love the idea of this kind of like wannabe British Will Will Smith galloping <laughs> around on like a mounted charger, five foot seven <laughs> if he's an inch, like like armoured up to the nines, just you know, kind of echoing somewhere from within his thing. You can hear him going, one, two, three, four, get with the wicked. And I just thought that was wonderful. Like I need more <coughs> rap medieval mashups in my life <laughs> uh, oh yeah so uh, Jamie meets uh, Sir Davin Lannister who's sort of the guy in charge of um, the, the, the the Lannisters in this area He's uh, his father was killed by Rob um, if you remember there was some battle at Oxcross way back when um, which was when you know the Starks were on the up and everything was good in the world and uh, that was yeah his dad was sort of was killed at Oxcross, I think by Karstark actually. Um, yeah. There's a little history lesson for you. But yeah. he's th- this this Sadavan guy seems sort of like uh, I quite like him because he's a, he seems he's like a fairly likable normal guy who just happens to be a Lannister. Um, and again, it's this yeah. sort of shade of grey, isn't it? Not all Lannisters are evil, and not all Starks are good. Yeah, and that's very true. And that was the point made by 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 um, the Karstarks, anyway, wasn't it? Like, because mm. because Karstark was a knobhead. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Like, uh, and I actually thought another a little bit later on. Uh, oh no, in this bit. Um, uh, what's her name? Jenna. Genna. Lannister. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like. Yeah. I, for all that, like, I'm certain I wouldn't want to have a fight with her. I quite liked her as a character. She did seem yeah. to me like kind of like a decent Lannister. Yeah, she struck me as sort of like the Lannister version of the Queen of Thorns. Um, slightly yeah. younger and obviously larger and more imposing. So Queen of Thorns is like, in terms of her, phys- physically she's very small. But um, this, they've both got the same kind of larger than life, um, brusque, but a, sort of avuncular approach to the world. Yeah, <laughs> and I do. You, you've got to love your your sort of type A indomitable female. Yeah. Uh, you know, older than older than sixty character. Just yeah. absolutely fantastic. Just wonderful to see. Just completely laying waste in this otherwise male dominated universe. Yeah. So, so the problem at Riverin at the moment is they're in a bit of a stalemate. River uh, Riverin has got a lot of supplies, and it's a very difficult uh, city to to take. And the uh, the Lannisters and Freys have got the place completely surrounded. They've actually got uh, Jemba Edmure Tully, the cat's uh, yeah. brother, who's the sort of Lord of River. And now he was captured at the Red Wedding, obviously. And now he's sort of every day is made to stand on a gallows in front of the city because this uh, the Frey who's in charge, Edwin Frey, is keeps making these threats to kill him unless the Blackfish, who's who's at River Run opens the gates and the blackfish never does and it's always shown as an empty threat because Edwin never kills him as well. Yeah. So complete stalemate. It's such a weird thing to do isn't it? Because what Mm. you're really doing day by day there is demonstrating that you won't carry through on threats you make. Yeah. exactly. But on the other hand I suppose that's what a siege is isn't it? Like a siege is a constant process of making threats and then not following through on them. Yeah. Yeah. So as you say, this this Jenna Lannister turns up, who's uh, one of the 
uh, quite, quite another another again fairly likable Lannister whisper it um and <laughs> her husband yeah her husband's a Frey who um stands to inherit river well stands to have Riverrun once it's taken and he's this little weaselly guy who keeps waving his paper in the air saying I'm the lord of Riverrun don't damage it when you take it back for me and all this <laughs> and his wife's like oh go on with it um, bloody hell interesting their their son was Cleos Frey who was the guy who was uh, remember when uh, Jamie was being taken back to King's Landing with Brienne he yeah. was the the knight who was who was with them and got killed on the road and he he sort of he was this fairly cowardly but you know quiet guy who got killed yeah. by bandits and then sort of looted and the sort of the the description of his death that Jamie gives is much more heroic and um you know to comfort the family and i think it's just that that's quite a classic thing isn't it the yeah. the idea of the the story about how someone died in battle is always much more glorious than what actually happened yeah yeah very much and you can almost you can almost hear jenna going oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. like, i don't think she's buying any of it yeah the other thing that jenna says actually because she's she's one of um she's she's one of she's basically jamie's aunt she's one of yeah. tywin's siblings and she remembers she's they're talking about sort of Tywin's death and stuff and um and Jamie says you know did you you know did you love Ty, did you did you love my dad like Tywin and she's like well she tells this story of when she was getting married off and yeah. um like no one spoke up for her when some basically some injustice happened apart from Tywin who was only 10 who sort of got up and yeah like, it's just she's like oh it's, it's hard it was hard not to love him after that and it's just this again this other side of Tywin who, this, this character who you could you can imagine telling a different story with Tywin Lannister where he sees his dad being just run over by all these other lords for years and it's this big story about taking power back for his house yeah yeah you could although I think you'd still struggle to kind of cast him as a good guy yeah ultimately <laughs> um, I, although I don't <laughs> I know I was supposed to find this incredibly moving and just the idea of like, you know, kind of like even even as a 10-year-old, he's incredibly sort of <laughs> yeah. personable and stuff. But all I could really see was just this unbelievably pompous 10-year-old getting up and saying, this is completely wrong. Marriage is supposed to be between people of equal station. How very dare you, sir. I denounce thee. I denounce thee. <laughs> yeah, and just a few of the lords going, oh, look at little Tywin. And Tywin's just thinking... One oh, yeah. day, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, <laughs> can your mother stitch, pal? Hey, eh? <laughs> this is when the legend was born. This, this day, yeah. what, what an origin story! <laughs> oh, the story, the story of how Tywin Lannister became the biggest badass ever seen <laughs> was when his sister was married. <laughs> what? Yeah, it was really bad, though. I mean, it was, yeah. Yeah, but it's not exactly as if... It's not like Bruce Wayne seeing his parents get killed in front of him, is it? <laughs> well, it all depends. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, let, let's leave Riverrun to its stalemate for now and mm. uh, move on to Cat of the Canals. Oh, oh, no, before we do, I tell you what, I tell you, we've got to talk about the last line of that um, of that chapter. Oh, shit, yeah, of course, yeah. Love so, that. Yeah, so basically Jenna says to uh, to Jamie... They're talking about, you know, Jamie's saying, you know, how he wants to sort of, I don't know, honour Tywin's memory and all this. And Jenna says that the sort of the true son of Tywin, although he could never see it, was Tyrion, and yeah. that you know, basically that they have much, he has much more in common with his his dwarf son than with than with Jamie, who's got, you know, various qualities, but not quite the same as Tywin. Yeah, well, because Tywin's a political animal, wasn't he? As well as being this unbelievable badass, yeah. he was uh, he was really politically astute, which is why... I mean, she says one of the only times she ever saw him smile was when he became Hand of the King. Mm. And, um, and, that was, and that was Tyrion's thing as well, wasn't it? Is that he was really good at being Hand of the King. Mm. Like, really good at it. Um, but he was outflanked by his sister because his sister's mental. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so, but I thought it was really great. If only because 
We've not heard a lot of Tyrion this this book, have we? And we're not going to. And I think that's a risky move on George's part, taking all the likable characters out of the volume and putting them in the next book. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I feel like that's quite a um, that was quite a risky move. So I just love the fact that he was mentioned and that he hasn't fallen off the face of the earth. You know, yeah. <laughs> George acknowledges that he's still part of the continuity of this story. Yeah. I thought it was quite interesting as well, just to show that there are other people, even Lannisters, who recognise Tyrion's qualities, even if yeah. sort of the immediate family don't, even if Tywin and, to a lesser extent, Jamie and certainly Cersei don't. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, Jamie now hates Tyrion, doesn't he? Because of, because he's planted these seeds of of discord between him and Cersei, and because mm. he he betrayed Jamie's trust and killed their father when he was let free. Yeah. Um. You know. So I think that that's. I'm looking forward to these two characters meeting again if they ever do. Yeah. Um, but, one of the uh, many. Yeah. One of the many sort of differences with the series, and one one of the strangest divergences is there, isn't it? Because. In the in the books, the feelings very mute, uh, mutual. Tyrion absolutely hates Jamie as well, and yeah. part of what he said to Jamie when they parted was because he hates. You know, he actually lied and said, "Yeah, I killed Joffrey," basically because of this secret which was given out about you know what happened with the uh, Taisha, the uh, the girl who was a prostitute but wasn't in Tyrion's mm-hmm. past. And in the series, that story never happens. And yeah, when when we come back to Tyrion later on he um he seems to still have a lot of affection for his brother and yeah. I, I find it interesting how those two paths have diverged and what it yeah. could mean for for the, for each story going forward yeah yeah that's true i actually I, while we're talking about the differences between the series and the book i read on george martin's blog the other day for a couple of episodes back in the series something dramatic happened surprisingly and um <laughs> since it's an adaptation of this novel right um <laughs> must you give us such a big spoiler like that something dramatic <laughs> happened god there's no point watching it Fucking hell, if, you've, if you've read the book you know that that's a surprise um <laughs> but um he put on the he put on his blog he was like you know things have been different since the first episode subtly you know and this is kind of like the butterfly effect you know small changes but get big changes but he was like, they're making their thing, I'm making my thing, and we intend to end in the same place, is what he said. Mm. So I, I think it could be a really interesting thing to do, if he ever finishes the, se- the book series, to, mm. to, watch the, to watch the TV series and then read the books and see what different narrative decisions they made. I think it would be a great study in sort of storytelling and, and how people change it up. Because mm. there's no doubt in my mind. Now, in the middle of the quagmire of A Feast for Crows, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that the people who make the TV series have a lot more self-discipline when it comes to, like, having stories to tell and, like, mm. having things happen. Whereas, whereas George seems perfectly happy to meander through this entire book without really anything very much of great consequence occurring. Mm. And that's, I, as you may be able to tell, I'm beginning to find that wearing. <laughs> Yeah, because we're getting further and further away from... If, if you are watching the series as well, there is so much of this that we're reading at the moment that just never happens, isn't there? And at the same time, there's so much that's going on in the series that just, just isn't happening in this book. So it feels almost <laughs> ridiculous to be doing them in in parallel at the moment. But um, this is sort of where, where we are compared to, you know, if you're going to do one book, one series comparison, this is where we are. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'll tell you um, what, actually, uh, while we're, sorry, uh, one more yeah. thing on the meta crap about the series and the book and the rest of it. Yeah. Like, it only really occurred to me a couple of days ago that George really has, in writing this book and then doing A Dance for Dragons with all the other characters that he's not doing in this book, um, he really has made a strange decision. He's taken out, it's as if he's anticipated which characters I was going to like and then taken them all out. <laughs> and left me with this endless sweeping morass of characters I've never met before and don't have time to come to care about. Yeah. Slash Brienne, who's I I like, but he's not terribly you know interesting. Slash endless fucking King's Landing Lannister bollocks. There's no John. There's no Tyrion. There's no um. Uh, who else have we got? There's Daenerys. No, yeah, John, Tyrion, and Daenerys. Basically, the, the only three characters I can stand to be around. And it's as if he's looked <laughs> into the future through his fucking palantir and gone, ah, I see Dave will really enjoy these things. Fuck those <laughs> off for a start, then. 
<laughs> yeah, it's sort of like, do you remember when you really liked Rob Stark and I killed him? Well, now I'm going to do something even worse. I'm not even <laughs> going to kill them. I'm just not going to write about them. <laughs> They're alive so and things are happening. But you can't know about them. You don't know what they are. <laughs> oh, God, can you imagine if we were doing this before A Dance with Dragons came out? Just, I begin to understand that thing from that YouTube video from Axis of Awesome. I read the fucking book. It was a six-year wait for A Dance with Dragons. That would have made me so angry if this was the only thing that I got to see the whole way, like, for six years. I'd be like, George, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> yeah, there's a page at the end of this, uh, of Feast for Crows, where he says, it's sort of the author talks to you and he says, if you're wondering what's going on up at the wall and over with Daenerys and with Tyrion, um, that's next time. And I just, I, I just, first time I read that, I wondered how many people got as far as that and didn't give up before thinking, well, well they've all disappeared, <laughs> balls to this. Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And plus, I mean, he clearly struggled to write this one. I don't want to be in his face about it because, you know, we've all had difficult work experiences and I can't imagine struggling for so long over something like this. But at the same time, write a better, write it fucking differently. If you decided that the only way to do it is to pull these characters apart, like, mm. I think you've, the very fact that you feel the need to talk directly to the reader mm. and kind of tell them, you know, hang out, stick around, don't worry about it, you know, it's, you know, it's all going to come back together. The moment you need to do that, I think you've probably broken your own narrative structure. Yeah. Just put in, other, put in other chapters, do you know what I mean? I wonder if he, he got so tangled up that he thought, right, I'm just going to write the West, like the Lannister, sort of the, the, the Westeros political stuff now, and I'll worry about the wall and what's going on across the narrow sea in a bit and then I'll put them all together and then it got to the stage where it had been so long it had been so many years his yeah. publisher's like look you've got to get something out so he's thought well okay well I'll just put out what I've got so far and then I'm going to have to just write yeah. it in two halves I'd imagine that's what's happened because it doesn't feel like there's any a, a strong literary reason to split these up I think it's more about just how long it's taken him to write it isn't it yeah, 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 and it's definitely been a struggle, and and it's kind of sad that you can feel the struggle because the the previous three have been so tightly plotted and really clear, mm. and you know where they're going and all of that, and now it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, let's get on to the last chapter for today, which is Cat yeah. of the Canals. Yes, yes. Oh, there's something you didn't mention, Aya. Do you not like Aya? Uh, she's. She's beginning to redeem herself a little bit, but I'm still very much in the I cannot begin to understand why this matters mindset for Arya. You know, like, there's just no... There feels no or very little narrative push in her chapters at all. I read them and I'm like, and I care because... Although, actually, funnily enough, it was while reading this chapter, this Cat of the Canals chapter, which is obviously an Arya chapter, Mm. um, where I realised that this is... This is this is kind of like the hero's epic journey, like mm. in a, I, I compared it to like Jason and the Argonauts and that sort of thing, mm. where you have the whole point in the Odyssey, where the whole point is this character goes off into the world and it's like a, it's like a a, a, a buildings Roman, like a like a, a um, buildings Roman, that's something else. No, it is, yeah, like a, like a kind of like a coming of age story, like yeah. a, a story where it doesn't really matter what happens so much as it matters what it does to the character of the person it's happening to. Right. But those stories are satisfying only if the incidents are entertaining and if you finally get to see a way in which they, you know, they they, they return and the way they've changed changes the way things are. Like Stardust, actually, by Neil Gaiman is a great example of that, where this mm. kid goes off in search of true love and in the process of finding it discovers that he doesn't want it. And that's just right. fucking brilliant. And I kind of want George to put me in something like that with Arya, but because he's done this whole clusterfuck of a book, I now don't have faith that that's necessarily going to happen. But I can right. go, I, I'm, I'm still on board with it because I can kind of see how it might happen, and that's about as good a crumb of entertainment <laughs> as I get at this point out of this book. Yeah. I suppose, yeah, I suppose Cat of the Canals... I suppose I is a, a bit of a victim to the not-much-happening... Uh, yeah. thing here she's been, yeah. she's been in Bravos for it seems like a 
it's only been a book, but it seems like she's been in Bravos for the best part of 50 years now and without a great deal going on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it rem- <laughs> it really reminded me, actually. Do you remember that old Family Guy episode where um, where Brian the dog goes to a showing of the Blair Witch Project uh, as, a, as like a guide dog and describes yeah. it to the guy that he's there to see it with? And he just goes, nothing's happening, nothing's happening, something about a map, nothing's <laughs> happening... It's over. A lot of people in the audience look pissed. I kind of feel like that's what's happening here with the Feast for Crows. <laughs> like, if you could yeah. narrate my experience of reading, it's nothing's happening, nothing's happening, it's over. He looks really angry. <laughs> well, okay, well, let's have a look at what is happening. Maybe nothing at the canals. Cast of the canals. So it's it's another semi-midlog because it's not Aya as Aya. It's Aya as Cat. Mm. Um was like you banging your head against the table. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> no, but we thud. need to leave it in now for that. Cat of the... <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> um, so it's, it tells the tale of her working as sort of a... Um, it's like a, a fisherman's helper. She she goes out with uh, these other people. Uh, this, this sort of master fisherman buys a few, or trader buys clams and prawns and oysters and stuff and then it's her job along with a couple of others to sell them Mm. um and obviously it's a job within a job because her other job is back at the house of black and white she's got to return every so often and and tell them three things that she's learned it struck me as a bit like a a bravos version of ferris's little birds this she's one of the people just sort of the eyes and ears for the for the faceless men just telling them information Yeah, very, very much. And I, I tell you, there's a really interesting difference in tone between this and how it is in the TV series. Mm. Because in the TV series, this is all this is pretty creepy. Mm. And and here, like, it's all kind of you know the 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 guy that she talks to about it is only ever described as the kindly man, and yeah. and it all just seems a little bit more kind of she's in a vibe and she's actually enjoying herself, sort of thing. Uh, yeah. Whereas in the TV series, I'm just waiting for it to get screwed, um, yeah. and there's, there's a lot more violence in it. But um, but yeah, it's interesting that they have this kind of for a, for a death cult. They seem to be quite interested in what the living people do. Mm. You know, there's, I can't quite work out why they're fascinated with all of this. Yeah, it's interesting in the series when she's doing this like oyster salesmanship stuff as well she gives the impression like she's a- she's acting as a-, a sweet and innocent girl when she's selling the s- selling the oysters and it- I think it's supposed to show you that she's learning to put on a face you know mm. um, whereas in the book she's just she's still this little tear away selling um, selling clams I love mm. this bit I mean pardon the language here because it is pretty choice but um, so her, her favourite like insult is calling people camels cunts, and um, <laughs> and a favourite thing that she says is she always says, "Maybe I never saw a camel, but I know a camel's cunt when I smell one." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and you, the thing is that I don't know about I don't know about you, but where I grew up, that you, you've got the kids on the corner who absolutely talk that way just to piss off grown ups. Do you know what I mean? Like, they've learned a naughty word and they're just so in love with the fact that they they have a more meaningful relationship with these naughty words than they do with anybody else. So they just chuck them at everybody. Um, (laughs) I was actually watching um, watching an interview with Guy Garvey from Elbow, the band Elbow, and they wrote a song called Lippy Kids about kids like this. Because he once, Guy Garvey was the same, you know, he was once out on the street in, um, in, uh, is it Bury where they're from? Or yeah, I think so, somewhere yeah. in Lancashire, somewhere and um, and uh, and he walked past this bunch of kids, and he was like, you know, and he used to hang out on the same corner, so he felt, yeah. but he felt quite intimidated because he knew what he was like at that age. So he was just like, to show he wasn't, when you know, kind of anybody got the time, lads, and one of them just went fucking half three. <laughs> just, that's, this is exactly what that reminded me of. Do you know what I mean? Like the kid on the street is just like, "You're fucking what, son? You're fucking what? <laughs> Camels cunt!" It's just absolutely amazing. Yeah, this is all also part of her um, training to become nobody, isn't it? And uh, there's this there's this interesting moment where. She finds out when she's picking up all this information from um, from her selling and on the canals, she's 
she finds out that Lysa Arryn's dead, her aunt, yeah. and she's she thinks, oh well, you know, that doesn't mean anything to me because she was Arya's aunt and I'm not Arya anymore. Yeah. And it's it's her using she's obviously using this become nobody idea to almost protect herself from being hurt anymore. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is quite an interesting idea. Yeah, I, I find that very interesting. And like I can't I mean there's some towards the end of this chapter shit starts to happen which makes me kind of reconnect with the creepiness of this. Mm. But right now I can't decide if this is just a realistic interpretation of what people do in response to death. Mm. Or if it's like an ongoing kind of the weirdness of them this many faced god, the house of black and white thing. Like if this is creepy or if this is somehow good, I can't really work it out right now. Hmm. Yeah. Because in in many ways this stuff is sort of just like a grief coping technique, isn't it? Um, yeah, but it, yeah. it all gets a bit, a bit. But there's obviously a more than a more than a dash of weird creepiness to it as well. Um, yeah, a little bit of brevity, a little bit of uh, levity. I like the um, one of the people she sees every day is this this bloke who has a seal called Cassio, King of the Seals. And he's, this is obviously a seal trainer, and um, <laughs> I just quite liked that as a just an unusual thing to bump into. This like yeah. bloke with his pet seal that can beg and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> you can almost imagine him like you can imagine it, it coming out for the show. You know, Cassio, King of the Seals, oh, 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 oh. and the seal just kind of. <laughs> Like, like, flops around on stage, does the worm in front of him, you know, just sort of cracks out a few breakdancing moves. <laughs> yeah. He's the king of the seals. <laughs> ow, 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 ow. <laughs> right, I've, I've got a new prediction. Never mind Pod. I want, I want Cassio to end up on the Cassio, Iron Throne. Cassio, king of the seals, lord of the andals, king of the first <laughs> men. <laughs> <laughs> but King of the Seals always comes first on that list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Breaker of chains, eater of fish. He does it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so there's Cassio, King of the Seals, who we meet briefly. Um, Arya goes to uh, the brothel later on, mm. um, where she sells clams as well. Mm. And Darian's there, this uh, singer, Black Brother, who we last saw uh, ditching Salmon, Eamon, to say, you know what, I'd rather just sing for a living in Bravos, then go back to the wall. Mm. Um, Aya obviously hates him um, because she yeah. thinks he's, uh, you know, the worst kind of coward by uh, by leaving his... Uh, by basically deserting. Yeah. Um, and in the end, uh, they end up walking back to sort of afterwards. She's like, right, I've got to go. And Darian says, oh, I'm going the same way. I might as well walk with you. And he's sort of they're walking along the canals, and he's boasting about what he's going to do and how he's he's got to leave. And she's like, you know, shouldn't you go back to the watch? And he's saying, oh no, I've, you know, not doing that. I've left that behind me. And at the end, he says, as they're about as they go into this dark alley, he says, you know, oh, in any event, it's too late now. And uh, and Arya just says, just so, as they sort of walk in there. Yeah, this is some creepy shit. <laughs> yeah, because the creepy because you know, short time later she turns up back at the sort of fishing house with a pair of boots and like yeah I got some uh, got some boots for you and the guy said oh thanks yeah boots are quite good boots are hard to find and she's like yep <laughs> and uh, and then later on we get to the house of black and white she's learning a bit about potions she's playing the lying game where she's got a sort of tell a lie or work out what the other person says is a lie. Yeah. And the kindly man comes over and asks her about some information. And one of the things she says to him is, oh, yes, someone slit Darian's throat and threw him in the canal and uh, yeah. and stole his boots. And the kindly man replies with exact word for word what the fisherman said. He says, yeah. good boots are hard to find. And I is like, immediately goes, oh, shit. He knows. <laughs> and she tries to keep her face straight. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, let's let's break this down a little bit. Firstly, the fact that she's just killed this guy in cold blood, what what do you make of that? I mean, he's a, on, a, on 
in one hand you can go by like oh ride on he was a bastard and she she's got rid of him but yeah, yeah. at the same time a it's a child killing someone and b of all the people who do dreadful things in the world okay he's a coward but is, yeah. does that mean it's okay to slit the guy's throat well i mean within the morality of game of thrones death doesn't matter right so yeah. sure why not but but like you're right like if if, if Arya is going to start killing people she managed to survive two books wandering around westeros with the fucking hound but this guy who while a twat has just gone and slept with some prostitutes uh forsaken a vow and played a few songs you know it feels to me like it's in a different league but it's him that she's like yeah fucking have him like you're right it is weird and as i say like the arc of this this chapter is very much about aria's continuing growth into extreme creepiness Mm. yeah and there's so there's there's what does it mean for her as a person but there's also what does it mean for her relationship with the with the faceless men and she thinks you know maybe um they'll they won't be that mad but i mean she kind of knows she's going to get in trouble for this it's sort of it's sort of the extreme version of a kid doing something that she knows she's going to get in trouble but doing it anyway and seeing if she can ride it out um only rather than sort of stealing a bag of sweets from the pantry it's slitting a guy's throat and throwing him in the canal but um you know <laughs> there's a, there's a yeah. rough parallel uh, but she's yeah. uh she's thinking you know well you know the whole point of the faces men is to give the gift of death so you know that's just what i've done she's almost sort of trying to argue her way out of it has yeah. in her own head and in the end they don't sort of shout at her or anything she doesn't get in any trouble per se yeah. but she's given this cup of warm milk and sent to bed and she wakes up and she's blind bum 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 <laughs> What the fuck? I know, right? And I don't know about you, but like I missed I had to go back and reread the bit where where it turns out that she killed this guy. But the moment it started talking about the interesting and subtle flavour of the milk, since there's this whole sequence earlier in the chapter where she goes through the different flavours of different poisons, I was like, Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, this is the way it's gone. Alright then. Um And and but like but fucking hell, this is like I was saying earlier on, like I've to this point, I had thought of these people as being much more sympathetic than mm. in the TV series. Because in the TV series, she's getting knocked around all the time. She's getting beaten up. You know, she's she's met with Jake and Hagar again, who is takes the role of the kindly man in the TV series. Yeah. Um, uh, but but this is kind of creepy music and all of this, and it's all very kind of foreboding. Whereas to this point, I've just been like, okay, I guess Arya is now selling cockles. Great, sweet, <laughs> all right, done. Um, and then it just takes this right, this like handbrake turn into all of this creepy cult bullshit that I was kind of waiting for them to crack out the entire time, right? Because they're, you know, this is a religious group that makes absolute claims on people's identity, which mm. is, you know, you know, another word for a cult, really. If you have to subliminate your identity to another another authority figure, then it's, yeah. you know, that's that's dangerous. One of the signs, it's dangerous. Um, and I, so it does kind of like it with a bump. Whereas the TV series, it's been creepy since moment one. In the book, it's kind of like, okay, so she started off eating a worm out of somebody's face. But apart from that, you know, it's all been a little bit stable. You know, a bit, you know, weird sort of foster home setup, but great, you know. And then, <laughs> bosh, poison her, make her blind. <laughs> yeah. So um, we spoke earlier on about how we were worried about sort of pace of plot and what characters can and can't do. Are you becoming blind? What does that do for you? Do you reckon that's going to be sort of good for the plot? Um, maybe. I don't know, because I don't perceive a plot in the Arya story. I just think she's, like, she's just clearly here to have stuff happen to her and then hopefully do something meaningful to the rest of the world later on. So I'm yeah. just like, great, she's blind now. I, fine. You know, it's like Jamie losing his hand. You know, I'm kind of like, okay, that happened, I guess. I don't know why. And I don't yeah. see how it serves the broader plot that you're trying to forward here. So I'm kind of a little bit disengaged. I'm just, I'm just like I'm turning into the worst possible reader of the Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> like I'm just not engaging at all in these little moments. I'm just like, whatevs. Talk to me when we've yeah. got back to the big plot. <laughs> yeah, the, I got to admit, when I read this blind, I was like, oh, okay. Um, this is, yeah, it's sort of 
I was thinking, I was I was waiting for her to sort of get out of Bravos and do something, or maybe come back to Westeros. Or, yeah. And when this happened, I thought, oh, well, you know, it's another step away from her doing anything. This, If you're blind, you can't exactly turn into a badass assassin, can you? Yeah. I, 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 I sincerely hope it's temporary. Um, but Yeah, so do I, very much. You know. And I, I mean, I assume it is, but then again, who can know? And, <laughs> you know... Uh, right now, I'm not really bothered either way. You know, yeah. Yeah. you know, blinded children. Nah. <laughs> so uh, he's made so me next... a monster. George Martin has turned me into an unfeeling monster. <laughs> so uh, next week uh, we are reading from the next chapter, which is about Sam. Uh, Sam on the cinnamon wind, uh, and we're going as far as a chapter about Cersei, <laughs> which begins. Yeah, chapter about Cersei, which begins. Grandmaster Pycelle. We've not had enough Grandmaster Pycelle for my for my money in recent books. <laughs> That's true. He has fallen from his previous heights as old school hip hop maestro. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I, I want him back. What I want. Yeah, we need to bring that back. We had a long running thing where Grandmaster Pycelle sounds like the name of a sort of some kind of house DJ in a Grandmaster Pycelle. And I cannot believe that we're on book four, well, well of the way through book four, and he's still alive. Because yeah, isn't that <laughs> astonishing? Like, what, what the fuck is this? <laughs> All the people he's seen and go, yeah, brilliant. Him, oh, him and Boris Blout—they're just the fantastic ultimate survivors, aren't they? They are, yeah. Although Boris Blout, I think that's because he's so stupid that even people who hate him want to see what dumbass thing he does next. Yeah, and that's yeah. the only reason he's still alive. <laughs> Uh, okay, so that is for next week. Um, as ever, if you have uh, any thoughts on the book or the podcast, do send them in to us at either uh, on Twitter at Shark Liver Oil or where email address is Shark Liver Oil Podcast at gmail.com. That's Shark Liver Oil Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, as, as I've said in the last couple of weeks, we have noticed a quite significant spike in listeners, which is m- very welcome. But you all seem to be very quiet. It's a little bit. It's a little bit unnerving, isn't it? <laughs> Matt, you, you sound like you're on the very verge of telling people that you're not angry, you're just disappointed. <laughs> no, I'm not angry or disappointed. I'm just a little unnerved about all these people <laughs> listening and not saying anything. So please make contact, chatliverallpodcast at gmail.com um, and put my mind at ease. <laughs> yeah, everybody, I think you should know that uh, that Matt's approach... Uh, here has been he told me before we started recording that he kind of had this image in his head of us sitting in the middle <laughs> recording a podcast and everybody who listens just standing around with like hoods over their faces not even <laughs> chanting just just standing in the shadows looking at us i have to say i'm not that unnerved by it you know send the message don't send a message we love you but but honestly for matt's peace of mind as much as anything else i think he's starting to have nightmares <laughs> Maybe you think that's funny. I, I wouldn't blame you if you did. Just keep, just keep quiet and let my nightmares continue. <laughs> anyway, that's us for this week. Um, we'll be back next week with uh, the next piece. If you're reading along with us, as we say, as far as a chapter about Cersei, which begins Grand Meister Pycelle. And uh, we'll be back with that. And if you're watching the show as well, enjoy that. It was good in this week, wasn't it? Bloody hell. Yeah, classic. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, you know why it was good, Matt? John Snow was in it. John fucking Snow was in it. Unlike the rest of this novel. (laughs) Okay, well, um, until next time then. (laughs) Until next time. Bye-bye.